Good evening. Queen Elizabeth's casket winds its way through the United Kingdom, the role of the monarchy and colonialism in Africa, at 49 years since a coup in Chile, backed by the United States, killed thousands. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Monday, September 12, 2022. In Moscow on Sunday, a Russian Defense Ministry spokesperson said Russian troops are carrying out high-precision strikes against units and reserves of the armed forces of Ukraine in the Kharkiv region. The Russian spokesperson added Ukrainian armed forces are destabilizing the situation in the territory controlled by Russian armed forces, accusing Kyiv of deliberate shelling of power plants, transformer substations, and power transmission lines. On Saturday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky claimed that Kyiv had regained control of about 2,300 square miles of the country's territory as part of active action since the beginning of September. Zelensky says Ukrainian armed forces are now fully in control of the city of Balaklaya. On the same day, Russia announced its decision to redeploy Russian armed forces troops stationed in the area to reinforce Donetsk. Meanwhile, Blue and yellow Ukrainian flags flew over newly reoccupied towns across a wide swath of reclaimed land. The Ukrainian military said it had entered more than 20 settlements in 24 hours. There are reports of large numbers of Russian troops being taken prisoner. Without providing exact numbers, Ukraine officials say significant numbers of Russian officers have been captured. In Russia, some newspapers blame the West for the setback. It's not Ukraine that attacked Izium, but NATO, read a headline in the state-controlled newspaper. But despite the victory, reports of heavy Ukrainian casualties have been mounting. The United Nations Human Rights Office said last week that 5,767 civilians have been killed so far in the war. In more world news. King Charles III and his brothers and sisters stood in silent vigil around their mother, Queen Elizabeth II's coffin in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh today. Charles, Princess Anne, Princess Andrew, and Prince Edward lowered their heads as they stood at four sides of the oak coffin. The action began today in Scotland, where Queen Elizabeth lived on her private estate, Balmoral. The Queen was descended from the Royal House of Stuart and generally loved the people and climate of Scotland. The new King Charles III holds a string of titles in Scotland. He's passing them to his son William, next in line to the throne. Some in Scotland have been pressing for independence from the United Kingdom. The Queen was often a point of unity between the English and the Scottish, raising questions on the future of independence. Charles paid a ceremonial visit to Scotland's Parliament, where he received official messages of condolence. If I might paraphrase the words of the great Robert Burns. My dear mother was the friend of man, the friend of truth, the friend of age, and guide of youth. Few hearts like hers with virtue warmed, few heads with knowledge so informed. I take up my new duties with thankfulness for all that Scotland has given me with resolve to seek always the welfare of our country and its people, and with wholehearted trust in your goodwill and good counsel as we take forward that task together. Later that day, the royal family accompanied the coffin to St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh and then to London to lay in state in Parliament. There, Charles also thanked the body for their condolences. 
While very young, Her Late Majesty pledged herself to serve her country and her people and to maintain the precious principles of constitutional government which lie at the heart of our nation. This vow she kept with unsurpassed devotion. She set an example of selfless duty, which, with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow. The address by His Majesty the King, presented now to Speaker of the Lords. The Queen, a powerless yet influential post, was head of the Commonwealth of Nations, an association of former British colonies that has grown to 56 nations. The Commonwealth grew out of the 1950s and 60s decolonization of much of the former British Empire, then the largest empire amassed in history. At one time, the empire encompassed a quarter of the world's population and land, and even the colonies that became the United States. It was a bloody empire built on fables of British superiority and racial domination, in fact, the princess, who became queen on the death of her father, was visiting the colony of Kenya when she heard the news she was now the queen. At the time, a bloody rebellion was being fought. A Ugandan-American author, journalist, and professor is Milton Alamadi. He says, while the queen might not have been a bad person, the monarchy has been a nightmare for millions of his subjects, and the effects linger until today. She was in Kenya mm -hmm. when uh, her father died, and she became uh, the queen. In 1952, in 1952 was the year in Kenya which, uh, when the, um, the War of Independence really escalated and the British declared a state of emergency against the Kenya Land and Freedom Army and went into the very clever propaganda of demonizing them as godless savages, uh, tagged a label on them called Mau Mau, which is not even an authentic African word. And that propaganda was then uh, you know, duplicated by U.S. Uh, media as well. And it allowed them, once you've been demonized, as you know, you can really do horrific uh, things to people, and uh, people will just stand, the outside world will just, you know, stand aside. By declaring the state of emergency, the British were then able to bring in soldiers from other British colonies as well as uh, British troops from Britain and really horrifically uh, crush this uh, uh, war of liberation. And the, principle, the majority of people who were killed were actually civilians. Um, some of the British commanders, and there's a very good, uh, by the way, about this uh, called Imperial Reckoning by uh, Harvard professor Caroline Elkins. Um, I think the estimates of uh, civilians that were killed go up to as far as uh, 100,000 uh, by the time this war was over. Wow. And only 32 uh, they call themselves settlers. Uh, you know, I can't bring myself to say that because if you come to somebody's country, you kick them off the land and you take over the land, you're hardly a settler, right? <laughs> well, let's go with that designation anyway. Only 32 settlers were killed during the entire period of this war. And yet the Kenyans lost about 100,000 people. So the Kenyans uh, remember that imperial era in a very different way, of course, than anybody else would. But Africans generally, because this is the final point I would like to make. Yeah. When Europeans uh, took over African territories, basically what they did was they created plantations. So what Africans were allowed to do was grow certain crops. They call them cash crops, as you know. 
like uh, tobacco, uh, tea, coffee, that were then exported to Europe. You can't eat that. So that affected the food production. And we see that pattern even today. Now there's a hung, uh, you know, famine going on in African countries uh, because of that same pattern that was established, focusing on producing crops that will be exported for revenue uh, to the industrialized countries and ignoring the production of food for consumption of your own citizens. And then the second thing was that uh, the, uh, the European occupiers of African territory took raw resources back to their factories in Europe. So let's take cotton, for example. Cotton would be taken, uh, turned into textiles and clothing, and then sent back for Africans to buy at a grossly inflated price. And that's why Africa was not able to industrialize. So today, in the 21st century, African countries primarily still produce primary commodities exported to the industrialized countries, including the United States, and import manufacturers. And you really can't move forward like that. That is a formula for perpetual impoverishment. Last question. How should we think of the queen to wrap this up? Uh, The queen as a person. She seems to be a nice person, doing a lot of charitable work. But the queen represents the people around the world know her because she's the leader of the British monarchy. So that's why I said from the beginning, it's very hard to separate the person from the institution of the monarchy. We're now in the 21st century. Obviously, her reign was long when imperialism was really still, uh, how should I say, very firm and very aggressive and very brutal. Now it's done in a very different way. I personally, if somebody were to ask my view, I would hope that institution should, should be abolished. Obviously, it's very symbolic now, but still, they still take a lot from yeah. British taxpayers, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the uh, Uganda, does Uganda have the Queen's picture on their money anymore or anything like that? No, 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 no. I think most British, most African countries removed that. I yeah. think a couple of the Caribbean countries still have that, but I don't know of any African country that. Uh-huh. Very uh, interesting. Yeah, I always found that mm-hmm. weird that you had some other person's leader on your money. It was very strange. All right, great. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate your time, Milton. I'll send you the link when it's okay, done. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. All right, be well. You too. Milton Alamadi is a Ugandan-American author, journalist, and professor. He spoke with the news earlier today. The Queen's remains will be taken to Westminster Abbey for a state funeral on September 19th. In national news... It was 60 years ago today, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech at Rice University Stadium in Houston, Texas. In the speech, justified as a unifying moment for Americans, Kennedy tossed down the gauntlet to Russia for a space race to the moon. Not because it was easy, the president said. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic. Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. (laughs) 
President Kennedy 60 years ago today announcing his plan to reach the moon by the end of the decade. A year later, on November 22, 1963, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. The Russians soon dropped out of the cash-guzzling contest. Apollo 11, the first manned spacecraft to land on the moon, arrived on July 20, 1969. And President Joe Biden made use of the anniversary of JFK's speech as a backstop to his own version of the moonshot, the new American moonshot aimed at eradicating cancer, the president said, as we know it. President Kennedy said America was doing so, quote, not because it was easy, but because it was hard, because the goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept. One we're willing, not one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. Unwilling to postpone, President Kennedy, unwilling to postpone. President Kennedy set a goal to win the space race against Russia and advance science and technology for all of humanity. And when he set that goal, he established a national purpose that could rally the American people in a common cause. And he succeeded. Now, in our time, on the 60th anniversary of his clarion call, we face another inflection point. President Biden. The cause is a personal one for Biden, who launched the moonshot originally as vice president just months after his son, Beau, died from a rare and aggressive form of brain cancer in 2015. Biden reiterated the importance of this cancer moonshot to him, saying it was one of the reasons he ran for president in 2020. In 2019, 600,000 Americans died of cancer, the highest rate of cancer deaths in the country are among black men. Black women also suffer higher death rates than white women. And it's been nearly 50 years since the infamous coup in Chile on September 11th, 1973, the other September 11th, it was a military coup d'etat led by General Augusto Pinochet, who ruled as a strongman afterwards for decades. Chile's Air Force bombed the presidential palace where Allende was holed up. Over three years, 130,000 Chileans were rounded up by soldiers trucked in from around the country, held in 13 camps, including the notorious Santiago Stadium, where many were tortured and killed. Thousands died or disappeared. The elected president, Salvador Allende, was trapped in the presidential palace and killed himself to avoid capture. At least two United States citizens were murdered, as well as the singer, Victor Jara. The director of the National Security Archives Chile Documentation Project is Peter Kornbluh. He says while Allende made some mistakes, the coup was caused by meddling by the United States Central Intelligence Agency. He spoke with the news earlier today. Well, the CIA was d directly tasked by Richard Nixon on September 15, 1970, in a meeting between Nixon and Richard Helms, the CIA director, to make the economy scream, to use the best men we have, uh, take $10 million more if necessary. These are all quotes from Helms's notes, President of the United States ordering the CIA to conduct regime change against a democratically elected government. And uh, the agency ran a number of very key programs to 
undermine Allende. One was a massive propaganda operation, financing to the leading opposition newspaper, El Mercurio. The conditions uh, for a coup climate, as CIA documents refer to it, you know, did over time evolve. Uh, and the agency's own documents claim that major propaganda operation support for the leading newspaper, El Mercurio, was a bullhorn of opposition against Allende, quote, set the stage for the coup on September 11, 1973. The assassinations, the murders, the kidnappings, disappearances, I mean, the movie Missing, of course, focuses on the sympathetic American guy who was terribly murdered. But we know that a lot of people died. A lot of people, the great uh, poet, uh, had his hands smashed. What happened in that stadium? It was Victor Jara, the famous folk singer, the Pete Seeger of Chile, who had his hands smashed. He had been detained defending uh, with his colleagues uh, a university building from the military onslaught. He was a very well-known figure in Chile and was brutally... um, The movie Missing, which you referred to, was probably the best well-known and and the reason why Chile is known in the popular folklore of, of U.S. foreign policy abuses. That movie was about the death of Charles Horman, Harvard-trained filmmaker who had gone to Chile with his wife, Joyce. Seven or eight, nine months before the coup took place, he was seized at his home by the Chilean military, disappeared. He had been murdered by the Chilean military. That case still is under investigation today. There's another American, Frank Cherucci, was also detained and executed at the National Stadium. And then there's the case of Orlando Letelier that you referred to, the Chilean diplomat who was murdered by a car bomb in Washington, D.C. in 1976, along with his young American colleague, Ronnie Carpen Moffat. That's one of the reasons why we continue to remember the anniversary this week and why, with the 50th anniversary coming, my organization, the National Security Archive, will make a major push to get as many of the still-secret covert operations documents and U.S. documents available to the American public. Meanwhile, in Santiago, the capital of Chile, police used tear gas and water cannons to battle protesters, some who hurled firebombs and rocks. Thousands, meanwhile, marched peacefully through the city, some carrying photos of Salvatore Allende. The current president of Chile is 36-year-old Gabriel Boric, who was elected in March, a former student protester who is key to writing a new post-Pinochet constitution for Chile. Nevertheless, earlier this month, 62% of voters rejected the new constitution, but activists say it's only the beginning of their struggle for democracy. Peter Kornblu says the changes can't be stopped. This past September 4th, 2022, was a major referendum in Chile. It came 52 years after the election of Salvador Allende on uh, September 4th, 1970. And it showed Chile to still be a divided society. The majority of Chileans decided they did not want a new constitution the way it's been drafted to replace the Pinochet constitution. There have been protests for the last three or four years in Chile, particularly in, in 2019, 
of Chileans that simply are fed up with the inequality in the society and the lack of government support systems for the Chilean public. And the protests were quite militant and quite violent and involved tens of thousands of people almost every day. The result, the, the agreement to end those protests came with an agreement to rewrite the Constitution. But now the rewrite has been rejected on September 4th. And it's almost back to the drawing board for Gabriel Boric, the young new president of Chile, who in some ways is a descendant of Salvador Allende's kind of peaceful road to change, but not a socialist himself, more of a just true, genuine, straightforward, non-ideological reformer. But uh, redoing the Constitution is the next and last major step to leave the Pinochet era behind. Corn Blue is director of the National Security Archives Chile Documentation Project. He released documents showing a presidential briefing to President Richard Nixon. The page regarding the coup in Chile is blacked out and classified to this day. Closer to home, New York City officials announced today that New York is launching an apprenticeship program that aims to place 3,000 students in companies focused on finance, technology, and business operations over the next three years. At 59 high schools, 9th and 10th graders will get access to a career readiness curriculum that includes how to use Microsoft Office, build a resume, and successfully complete a job interview. A handful of companies have preliminarily agreed to hire apprentices, including J.P. Morgan, Ernst & Young, Accenture, Amazon, MasterCard, and the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Mayor Adams was ebullient. He praised the Career Readiness Initiative and told a story about how important it is to interact with people of different cultures from his own experience as a teen. It involves hockey, often considered a white person's sport. Ask me, did I want to go to Madison Square Garden to see the game? I said, Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, yes. <laughs> I got there, and it was not a basketball game. It was a hockey game. <laughs> and I said, I said, David, what are you doing? <laughs> Black people don't like hockey. <laughs> and... When I walked inside, I was afraid. First time in my life, I was outside of the normal community of just all African-Americans. And I sat there, and the game started, and I watched the excitement. And people who sat to the left and right of me was giving me high fives, and we were laughing, we were enjoying the game. And I realized something. There was no sign at Madison Square Garden that stated black people couldn't watch hockey. It was in my head. I built this imaginary wall of saying what I couldn't do because of my ethnicity. This is a hockey moment for us. These young people have been betrayed for so long. And this city has produced broken babies that turned into broken children that went into a broken system and became broken adults. Mayor Eric Adams. 3,000 apprenticeships at 59 high schools over three years is a drop in the bucket. There are roughly 288,000 students across more than 400 public high schools in New York City. And that's some of the news for Monday, September 12, 2022. The news was produced, written, and anchored by myself, Paul DiRienzo. You can hear it at pauldirienzo.com or subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and on Apple Podcasts. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.